Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're going to continue our study this morning in the great gospel uh, of Mark. We've been looking at the life and times of Jesus, the Son of God. If you're new to reading the Bible and you're here with us today, you'll find Mark about two-thirds through your Bible. It's the second book of the New Testament We'll have the verses up on the screens, but if you don't own a Bible, you don't have access to one, I'd like to give you one. We'd like to give you one as a church, so come see me or go back to the uh, bookstall out in the back, and we'd love to give you one this week or next week and just get you set up with the Word of God so that you can be reading on your own uh, throughout the week. Well, this morning, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, and so we're going to jump right back into Passover week. This is Passion Week. Jesus is marching on towards his crucifixion. So last week was Tuesday of Passover week, and we see that this, we saw this unique, rather odd story, didn't we? This story that at first glance looked like, looks like it has nothing to offer us in terms of application or wisdom. It's a story we'd probably just pass over in our reading or perhaps pass over in our preaching, and yet we saw that it has a lot to say to us. We saw that this cursing of the fig tree, this killing of this fig tree, was a symbol that the temple was not only being cleansed, but the temple was being closed, right? That these sacrifices were going to end, this repetitive nature of sacrifice year after year, this coming to the temple to worship was coming to an end because Jesus himself is the new temple. And so no longer do you come to a special place to worship. No longer do you offer certain sacrifices that point to the one who would come. No, the one who would come has has come. He's Jesus. And so now, so now Jesus is our intermediary. Jesus is our only mediator, and he's with us now. And so we learned that last week on Tuesday of Passion Week, and now we're going to pick it up, and it's Wednesday. It's the very next day in the chronology of the life of Jesus. He's just two days from the cross, and it's going to be the last time Jesus is going to enter into the temple. And once again, these crowds are buzzing They were flocking towards him like the paparazzi hunting down a celebrity, which I know many of you youth are getting ready to do tomorrow night, right? With Lecrae and Tadashi, some of you are going to hunt down this celebrity, hunt down this man uh, out there in Sharjah. Thousands of people are expected to come. Well, this is what the scene was for Jesus. People were crowding around him. Many were gathered around Jesus just to take a look at this man or perhaps to see what he's doing or maybe, as we see today, Others were gathering opposition against him to question his authority. And really, that's the focus of the passage this morning. It's the authority of Jesus. And we're going to look at three things, three points here in this passage. And the first one is simply the authority of God. The authority of God. Secondly, the patience of God. And then thirdly, the love of God. So the authority, patience, and then love. Well, first, let's start with point one, the authority of God. We're going to see that in verses 27 through 33. It says, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, 
Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Well, they discussed it among themselves, and they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. See, throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus in verbal combat with, with religious leaders. This is nothing new. But now, for the first time, these spectators, this crowd is going to see the first face-to-face confrontation between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were the 71 members who held all the religious authority in Jerusalem, in Israel. They were the chief priests, the scribes, and other religious leaders. They had almost complete freedom from Rome. They could do what they wanted there in Israel. Nothing ever happened without the approval of this group. And so they're thinking, now, Jesus, what are you doing? You're flipping over money-changing tables. You're clearing out the temple. This is our domain. This is our stomping ground. So they take this official delegation to Jesus. I mean, this wasn't an, oh, hey, Jesus, nice to bump into you at the temple again. Let's go have some Turkish coffee and let's sit down for a little bit and chat. You know what you did yesterday when you bumped over those tables? Man, that wasn't real cool. What you did yesterday, that wasn't all right. It cost us a lot of money. It cost us a lot of our power and prestige. Why don't you not do that again? No, they didn't sit down for coffee. They didn't do any secret handshake at the end, you know. None of that. No, it was a showdown. It was a carefully chosen designation, designa- uh, delegation. It was in light of day. It was in public view. The Sanhedrin versus Jesus, the smartest, the wisest, the highest religious authorities, all together against one man. And the suspense was building. Everybody knew what happened on Tuesday. Everyone knew the events. They were coming, crowding around to hear what might be the greatest debate in human history up to that point. In the Sanhedrin, they kick off this debate. They kick off this confrontation with one question. Hey, Jesus, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Show us your credentials. What gives you the right to clear out the temple? You're a carpenter. You never went to temple school. You've never been discipled by one of our rabbis. You don't have any religious credentials. You haven't passed our religious councils. What gives you the authority? What gives you the right to do what you're doing? Jesus, rather brilliantly, like he always does, he answers and says, all right, let's, let's play a little game. I'll make you a deal. I'll answer your question if you answer mine first. And so now Jesus is on the offensive, and he says, remember John the Baptist? That guy, he was a good buddy of mine. Remember his baptism? Was it from heaven, or was it from men? And basically, he's asking what they think about the nature of John's ministry. Is he a prophet of God, or is he just a man? Just give me a yes or no, and I'll get back to your question. Well, first reading, as you glance 
through this passage, you might have thought this question seems a bit irrelevant or maybe even evasive. I mean, what does John's baptism have to do with Jesus' authority? Is this some kind of diversionary tactic? Is Jesus trying to confuse them or distract them? Well, perhaps some of you here this morning who are married are used to creating diversions with your spouse. I know I am. I've tried to master the art of this over the years. You know, when Gloria starts talking about something that I don't want to talk about, maybe an issue that I want to steer clear of, I mean, in that moment, all of a sudden, after days and days, I finally realized that she's gotten this beautiful new haircut and decide it's perfect time to let her know what I think about it. Or it's the perfect time to let her know how much I love her and whisper sweet nothings into her ear. And it works. Works every time. Until now, because I think she's sitting in the back and just heard me. I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about. We've all done it. Our kids have done it to us. They've changed the topic of conversation. They steered clear where we were going. Well, it's important to know this is not what Jesus is doing here. He's not stalling for time. He's not trying to change the topic of conversation. He's not trying to buy time to think about what am I going to say next? What am I going to do? Now, Jesus is very intentional. No, everything he does here is with intentionality. Everything has to do with his authority. And Jesus, with this question, puts the Sanhedrin on the proverbial hot seat, so to say. It's an incredible question. It's a stunning challenge. Why? Well, because John the Baptist was indeed a great prophet of God. He was a well-known person. He was an amazing figure who ended hundreds of years of silence. Hundreds of years of silence of God. You know that at the end of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, there's four, at least four, about 400 years or so where the people of God hear nothing from God. It's just silence. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. He was greatly loved by the people. He was the last prophet before Jesus. And now in this moment, if the Sanhedrin say that John's ministry is from God, then they'll have to admit that Jesus is the Messiah because that's what John said with his very own lips. If you look back in the beginning of most of the Gospels, we see that John even says that his, he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of this man who is coming after him, one who will save his people from his, their sins. And if they say, though, on the other hand, that John's ministry is merely from men, then they've got a problem. Because all the people love John. They all think that John was a real prophet. You can't take John without Jesus, and you can't throw away Jesus without throwing away John. So they have a problem. The Sanhedrin convene a little meeting. They get together, and they start saying, well, okay, guys, if we say from heaven we've just admitted that jesus is the son of god because that's what john preached but if we say from earth then these people aren't going to like us anymore because they love john they're even going to riot they may even hurt us our business is going to be ruined they're not going to buy any more sacrifices the temple is going down our lives are over they may hurt us they won't be so popular anymore they won't follow us so what do we do What can we say? And so these Sanhedrin, you can just imagine them freaking out in this moment. Well, what should they have said? What's the answer to the question? Was John the Baptist's baptism from heaven or from earth? 
Well, of course, it's from heaven. He was the final prophet before Jesus would come. So in this dialogue, in this exchange, in this question, Jesus is inferring that his authority comes from the same place as John the Baptist, from heaven, that he is, in fact, the final authority. That's how he can go through the temple. That's how he can close it down. In fact, this has been the story of the Gospel of Mark, hasn't it? That Jesus is the King of Kings, that he has ultimate authority. We saw in Mark chapter 1, verses, verse 22, that the scribes were, and the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught with authority, not as the teachers of the law. Later in Mark 1.27, the people commented that Jesus commands even the unclean spirits out and that the demons obey his authority. Later in Mark 1, we see that Jesus had authority over disease as he heals a leper. In Mark 2, we see that the Son of Man has authority even to forgive sins. Later on, we see that Jesus has authority over life and death as he raises one from the dead. It's all over the book of Mark. And even in the book of John, John 1 says he has authority to save. John 5, the authority to judge all. John 10, the authority to rise again from the dead. And then if that wasn't enough, at the end of Matthew, in his final words, he says, remember these words, the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now this Jesus never asked permission from anyone to do anything. And while these scribes and Pharisees are constantly quoting others, we see 75 times in the Gospels, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. He's always quoting himself because he's the ultimate authority. He possessed authority as the divine son of God who only did what the Father does. Friend, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, you have to come to grips with who Jesus is. I mean, some have said that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, friend, it's written throughout the pages of Scripture that he's not just a man, that he's not a prophet, but he is God in the flesh, the one who has all authority. So the most important question in the world is, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you submit to him? Because there is no other way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So friend, if you haven't responded to Jesus, I want to tell you that in a real sense you have. By not embracing Christ today, you are actively choosing to reject him. There's no way to simply be neutral. There's no way to be passive. You either embrace Jesus... Or you don't. So how will the Sanhedrin respond? Will they embrace Jesus? And what are they going to do? You understand their dilemma. For them, the praise of man was everything. This power, this prestige, this money, this honor. They're stuck. Either they admit Jesus is from God or the crowds who they yearn for approval will turn against them. The crowd that they yearn for the money will turn against them. So in verse 32, after all this buildup, the crowd's at the edge of their seats for their answer. At the end of round one of the big debate of the century, 
they say, we don't know. And they walk away. They rejected him. Now these priests recognized certain things. Don't think for a second they didn't know about the miracles. They didn't know about what Jesus had claimed. They didn't know about what Jesus had done. Of course they did. But these men didn't care about the truth. They cared more about how the crowd would respond. More concerned with what others think than what God thinks. And so they just walk away. Well, how do we know this? We'll look back at verse 32. It says, it says they feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. Everyone could say it, but not them. Because they feared losing their business, their acclaim. They feared the people. I wonder if this part of the passage this morning is convicting for you. I wonder if we're like the chief priests in this story. I mean, do we live in the fear of God or something else? See, for these men to bow down and worship, it meant an end to their business. It meant an end to the empire that they built at the temple because... If Jesus is a new temple, then who needs them? Who needs the temple? Who needs the sacrifices? It would all be shut down, and they were were risking losing it all, losing what they've built their entire lives upon. If Jesus replaced, replaced the temple, then their lives as they knew it were not worth living. Friend, following Jesus will cost you. It may cost you your pride. You have to acknowledge that you need help. You'll have to get baptized like several friends did last week and come before all of us and say, I can't do it on my own. I need help. It may cost you your business. It may cost you your money. It may cost you your life. No, following Jesus will shut the things down that are competing for Jesus in your hearts. Now, are you like the Sanhedrin who rejected Christ because they loved their lives too much and feared losing it. See, the facts are there. The Sanhedrin saw it. You've heard it. A friend, who or what do you fear? It's important because who or what you fear will control you. You end up serving those things, whatever they are. But we weren't made for those false gods, were we? We were made for God. Fear him as the one who will sit as judge. Consider the one who has all authority. But see, the starting point is not just that he has all authority, is it? But it's that he is patient. That's the second point in this passage. It's the patience of God. We see that in a parable. In, verses tw- in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Look at these verses. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent the vineyard to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, 
whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Well, we see here the first parable in Mark since chapter 4. And we need to remember that parables have one main point. They're different from allegory where you look at every little detail for meaning. Now, typically there's one main point and perhaps several sub-points, but we're careful in parables not to stretch the meaning too far, to analyze every little detail. So in this parable, though, we do have four main characters that we need to look at. We need to understand who they are to understand the story. Well, first, we see that God is the landowner, that he owns the vineyard, that he planted it, that he cultivates it, so that it would be fruitful while he's away for a long season. He puts up a fence, he digs a pit for irrigation and washing, he builds a tower for protection. He cares about every last detail. I mean, he made it, it belongs to him. Every centimeter on this planet Earth falls under his domain which has major implications for our lives, doesn't it? It has implications for our church. It means the Redeemer Church of Dubai is not mine, it's not the elders, and it's not the congregation, that this church is owned by God through the precious blood of Jesus that was spilt for us. It has implications for our money. It's not ours, it means it's His money. And even though we work hard for it, and perhaps you're thinking you work hard hours here in Dubai... That you work difficult hours and long hours and you have a tough job. Well, perhaps you do. Perhaps many of us do. But God has given you his money to be a steward over it. And if you have lots of it, praise God. But live like it's his and not your own. Your spouse, your singleness, your kids, your stuff. It's all under his domain. He is a vineyard owner. He planted it and he's cultivating it so that it will be fruitful until Jesus comes back. Now, if you've spent any time around kids, specifically around, say, two-year-olds, two then you know what their favorite word is, right? You take a guess, their favorite word, it's not please, it's not thank you. I guess that's two words, but it's neither of those. No, the favorite word of a two-year-old is my or mine, right? If you're a parent, you've heard heard your kids say that. I know I hear our kids go, this is my house and my car, my daddy, my this, my that. And when we were traveling, our daughter Nora stood up on her airplane seat and declared to the whole plane, this is my airplane, stood up with gusto. And then she went on to say, this is my seat and my tray table and my pilots and my food and my TV and my movies throughout the trip. All we heard was my this and my that. And we just laughed. You know, we just laugh and laugh and laugh because we know it's ridiculous. We know she doesn't really own the pilots or the TV or the rights to the movies, nothing. And we just, just goes on and on. We laugh. Well, friends, far sillier than a two-year-old saying mine and my is when in the courts of heaven God hears us say, it's my money, it's my house, it's my time, it's my health, 
got to sound ridiculous to God. It's got to sound ridiculous to him in heaven. He owns it all. He built it. He created it. He sustains it. He has given it to us as stewards. We are under his authority while on earth to steward it. He is the land owner. It's his vineyard. So we see that this vineyard owner is God in this parable. The second character we see in the parable is the vineyard itself. We see that in some sense, as I mentioned, it's all of creation. It's all of us. But I think what Jesus is getting at here is he's going more specific than just all of creation. And he wants us to see that he's talking about the nation of Israel. He wants to make a point, and that's why he uses this image of a vineyard or, or of a vine. Oh, thanks, bro. Of a vine. It's all creation. But throughout Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Psalms and Hosea, we see this imagery throughout the book. And in Isaiah 5 specifically, we see that God is disappointed with his people. We see him talking about the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be a vine that brought fruit. They are supposed to be a vine that produced fruit that would be able to be eaten, good fruit. But in Isaiah 5, it says that this fruit was like rotten berries. It's not at all what happened. God was about to judge the nation of Israel. Well, third, we see that the corrupt religious leaders are the wicked tenants. These tenants were kind of like renters in that day. They'd come work the farm for the owner. They didn't own it, but they would cultivate it, and they'd receive a percentage of the profit. And then finally, fourth, we saw that the Old Testament prophets are the servants. The servants. This was a little harder to figure out upon first reading, but we see throughout the Old Testament that the prophets are often called the servants of God. Even the name Obadiah. One of the minor prophets, his name even means servant of Yahweh or servant of God. These who are raised up to serve God in speaking out to those in sin to counter the false teachers. And so they were called servants. So that sets up the scene just a little bit so we know who we're talking about. The vineyard, the vineyard owner, the tenants, the servants. So what happens in the parable? Well, the landowner sends a servant to gather the prophet and he's beaten And then another one is sent, and he's beaten. And then another one, and another one, and another one. And what happens? They're beaten, beaten, and then finally some of them are killed. The tenants didn't want to give anything back to the landowner, didn't they? They wanted to keep it to themselves. So they did this utterly shameful and dishonoring action to this landowner, and they killed his messengers. This is what happens when we start thinking that the things of this earth are ours. That's our things to do as we wish. The same attitude was seen in these evil tenets, in these religious leaders. These priests were supposed to lead the people to walk in the truth of God, and yet instead of honor, they were filled with shame. I don't know about you, but when you read this parable, I'm struck by the patience of the landowner. God. It's not just one more chance to these evil tenants, or even three strikes and you're out. He keeps sending another messenger and another messenger and another messenger. Now friend, this is a story of the Bible. This is a story of the Old Testament, isn't it? 
You know, some have said that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Some have said this in heresy and in error, that it's two different gods, because in the New Testament we see this God of love, this God of kindness, but in the Old Testament this God of evil, this God who kills, this angry God. But friend, that's not true at all. The God of the Old Testament is utterly patient. We see from Genesis chapter 1 on through the end of Malachi, that God extends patience to the people of God in sending another messenger and another messenger and another messenger and another messenger to the people of God, calling them to repentance. Now, friend, you see God is merciful, that God is patient towards us, that at any point God ought to have wiped out all of mankind, and yet he has extended grace. Now, my fellow Christian, I encourage you, think about your life before you were saved. Think about your life before you believed Christ as Savior. Think about your rebelliousness and your sin, that you are far from God, that you rejected him, that he would have been just to wipe you out right there on the spot. Maybe there are times when you completely just rejected the gospel. Maybe even when someone shared it to you, you just rejected it. I remember back at university when John first shared with me, I told him that what he was saying was untrue, that he was incorrect, that what he was saying was was wrong, and I rejected it in anger. In that moment, God would have been just to wipe me out, but he patiently waited with me, and he patiently waited with you. He's a patient God. But not only that, he's a loving God. That's the third point this morning. Not only authoritative, not only patient, but he is a loving God. I mean, just when you think his patience is about to run out in this parable, he sends his son. Surely my son, this is my son, surely he will command their respect. Surely my heir will do the trick. I mean, the crowd would have been gathered around Jesus. They would have been listening, going, are you crazy? I mean, what are you doing? Landover, you're nuts. You're insane. You need to go to the institution. I mean, do you see what's just happened? Do you see this very history of death? and of beatings to your messengers. Have you forgotten? I mean, what kind of landowner, after seeing his servants die, says, okay, now I'm going to send my son. The most precious one in my house. No, this is crazy talk. No one does this. No one. I mean, you'd expect the landowner to exact justice, right? You'd expect him to get a bunch of ninja warriors to karate chop them. Right, you expect him to go in with the full force, a full arsenal, and take these evil tenants out. Just a couple karate kicks. Take them out. Right? That would have been just to exact justice. Right? An eye for an eye, a life for a life. Everyone would have done this. Everyone would have done this. Everyone except God. Because he is ever so patient. He is ever so loving. The crowd would have gasped. Not the sun. Not the sun. This story is supposed to conjure up emotions in us. If you're a parent, it's supposed to conjure up our emotions. I mean, consider what the landowner is doing. He is sending his son his beloved son to certain death. 
And without wasting any time, they kill him. They reject him, and yet God had his sovereign work happening at the same time. Look at verses 10 through 12. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus is referring here to Psalm 118 that Lenny read for us earlier. It was a psalm of celebration, a psalm of praise that the people of God would sing when they came to the temple. And Jesus quotes an interesting part of the psalm. He quotes verses 23 to 24, and he says, haven't you read this? I mean, if you had, you wouldn't be surprised. This stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone, the most important one that completes the work of the others. I mean, the builders here refer to the religious leaders. They rejected and killed him. It was prophesied literally in this parable right before the crowd and right before the Sanhedrin, that the Sanhedrin would reject him. Do you see what's happening? Jesus' parable is explaining what the Sanhedrin are doing in that moment and what they're about to do. Two days later, they will kill Jesus. This parable is being acted out right before their eyes. And they're rejecting the only thing that matters, Jesus. And without him, this whole thing falls apart. Because anything you want to be or do has to start with Jesus. Friend, don't let him be the rejected stone. I mean, some of you have built your life and you forgot about Jesus. And now maybe you're trying to find a way to slip him in. Friend, it doesn't work like that. You can't just squeeze Jesus into your life like he's a side dish at dinner. No, he's the main meal. He's the main dish. He's the center of our lives. He's the one we must feast on. He's the one we must see and savor. He's the one who must rule all of our lives, all the millions and millions of mundane moments and the few extraordinary ones. He must rule and reign every domain, every moment of our lives. So this morning as you sit here, some of you need to consider dismantling much, if not your whole life, and rebuild it again around Jesus. Friend, what have you made the cornerstone of your life? Is it career success? It's just so big for us in Dubai. Many of us came here to advance our careers. Have you made moving up the corporate ladder your goal, your hope? And here's how you know this is true of you. It's because when there's no way up in your job or if you get turned down for that big promotion or you get made redundant, if in that moment, if your life is just crushed, if you are decimated in that moment, then friend, you have made your career the cornerstone. And we need to be happier that our names are written up in heaven than the popularity or prestige that our name on earth has been made with our careers. Or maybe beauty. How about beauty? Is that the cornerstone of your life? I can't help but drive down Jumeirah Beach Road and be reminded as I see health clinic and beauty clinic and beauty salon and cosmetic surgery clinic one after another. 
I heard this story from the New York Times this last week by Nora Ephron, who talked about this obsession with beauty, this obsession with vanity. And she says that some of her friends, I thought this was ridiculous at first, but it makes sense. She said some of her friends are becoming obsessed with their necks. They're becoming obsessed and starting to feel bad and worry about their neck. I'm feeling a bit unconscious, self-conscious right now as you're staring at my neck. I thought about wearing a turtleneck, but I realized I haven't worn one since 1985, so I passed on that, and it is a bit hot as well. No, I don't own any turtlenecks. Lenny, the fashion police, zero turtlenecks. If you own a turtleneck, that's okay. No offense, please. Turtlenecks are great for Dubai. Um, but in this news story... Nor Ephron says her friends literally wear clothes that cover up their necks. I mean, seriously. And she goes on in this article to say, it's because our faces lie, but our necks tell the truth. <laughs> Don't they? Right, we work hard to lift our faces. We work hard to put lots of makeup. We cut our, I don't even know, what, what is all these things called? Eyelashes? Yeah, eyelids. We trim everything. Get our nose hairs, if I remember, on Thursday night. We, you know, we color our beards, color our hair. We take care of our faces, right? We all get ready, even for church this morning. Perhaps you looked in the mirror. You got your face ready. Our faces can hide some things, but our necks eventually collapse. (laughs) Sorry, guys. They will. There's no way around it. And this article continued on and just said, beauty and youth are fleeting, They're fleeting. There's nothing we can do. There's no beauty salon. There's no cosmetic surgery center that can hold you together forever. Friend, I wonder if you're holding on to your beauty, your appearance as the cornerstone of your life. Even if you're young, perhaps you're in secondary school, maybe you're a teenager and you care more about your appearance and what you look to your schoolmates than you do about honoring God. Or maybe if you're about to retire, you care. Maybe anywhere in between. Friend, are you placing your appearance, your beauty, your fashion in the place of Jesus in your life? Or how about comfort or good health? Whatever it is, our natural tendency is to customize our lifestyle, not to please God, but to maximize our personal happiness. That's all of our tendency to act in such a way as to maximize our personal joy and happiness. Well, maybe you need to say to yourself today, you know what? I've been trying to squeeze Jesus into my time. I've been trying to push and shove Jesus into my budget or into my life. What if Jesus was my cornerstone instead? Friends, what if Jesus was your first priority? What if being devoted to him was your cornerstone And what if from there you built your schedule and budget off of that? What if you built your relationships and marriage and parenting off having Jesus as the cornerstone of your life? Because if you start with the wrong stone, your life is going to collapse like a faulty building. If you get the wrong cornerstone, it can't hold the weight of your life. The Sanhedrin were afraid of the people because their cornerstone was a claim Their cornerstone was the praise of people. Their cornerstone was the money that these people could give them. 
Friends, is Jesus the cornerstone of your life this morning? If you're here and you're a Christian, this would be a good day, a good time to think about your life and ask, are there any aspects of my life in which Jesus is not the cornerstone? Are there any ways I'm living like the wicked tenants and acting like God's vineyard is my own? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I plead with you, you need him. You need Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we're all here. We've all come to understand that we're like the wicked tenants in the story. That we're the ones who live lives of shame and have dishonored God by murdering his son. Maybe you read this parable today and on first reading you thought this father was stupid or even callous for sending his own son to the wicked tenants. I mean, why would he send his son into this anarchy? Friends, that's the crucifixion. It's all the sovereign plan of God that the Father and the Son were co-conspirators of a plan of mercy and grace. And when the Bible says we're all guilty of sin and that God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, it means that we have murdered the beloved Son and we have blood on our hands. See, this gathering this morning is not that we're the best or the nicest or the most virtuous people in Dubai, in Sharjah, in Umal Quwain. We don't come here to celebrate our goodness Oh, far from it. It's the complete opposite. We come here to celebrate God's goodness. We're a community of those who are saved by God's grace, who have realized that we need a Savior. That we need the only Savior God has provided, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has come down to earth in perfect submission to the Father, living the life that you and I should have lived, but haven't and can't. He lived it perfectly. And then he died the death we deserved. See, God has owed us nothing but hell and judgment, like those wicked tenants. We deserve death and judgment, and he's coming. And yet Jesus died, and he rose from the dead. His resurrection was like God's signature on all that Jesus did. It was like God's signature saying that what Jesus taught was true, that what Jesus said was true, that what Jesus did was true. And in Jesus, God has offered us amnesty, if we trust in him. And not only that, but he's offered us friendship and relationship. But there's nothing we can do. The Bible says while our good works are like filthy rags, if we would repent of our sin, turning from it, and believe in Jesus to save us, if we believe that Jesus can save us, he will. He promises to adopt us, and in spite of our greed and rebellion, of the past. He says he'll give us an inheritance better than gold, better than diamonds. He'll first give us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which will one day culminate in us rising, just like the Son of God has risen, to have an eternal feast, to have an eternity of laughing, free from sin, free from suffering, in his very presence for every single day, forever and ever and ever. Now, friend, if you're wrestling with this message today, this message of hope in Jesus. I'd encourage you to meditate on it this morning over the next few minutes as the believing community here takes part in communion. It's fitting that we take part in this sacrament this morning. There are two sacraments of the church. One is baptism that we celebrated last week, signifying new life in Jesus. And today we celebrate communion and signifying what the death 
of Jesus has done for us. This is a visual display of what we've talked about just now. This bread signifies this life of Christ on earth, this perfect life that was broken for us. And this blood signifies the blood that was shed to cover our sins and to offer forgiveness. I would ask you to consider this message this morning, but if you're not a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to let the bread and let the cup pass you by. For this is a meal for Christians who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. For 1 Corinthians 11 says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Well, if you're here and you're a Christian this morning who is repenting of your sin, we invite you to take part of this meal this morning. And I encourage you during this moment of reflection and during the process of taking communion, I encourage you to ask yourself one question. Are there any aspects of my life in which Jesus is not the cornerstone? Is there any aspect of my life in which Jesus is not the cornerstone? And I urge you to confess any lingering sin in that area and to ask God for strength to rebuild your life around Jesus. Friend, if you're holding on to some sin that you're just refusing to repent of this morning, you won't do it. I encourage you to let the bread cup pass you by. Repent before the Lord. Repent before anyone else you've hurt and look forward to observing the Lord's Supper when we observe it next time. Well, let's take that moment now to consider that question of Jesus as the cornerstone. Let's reflect on it. And then we'll pray in a moment. Take part in communion.